If you would now prepare for the ministry of God's word, please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6. And if you would, please stand together that our reverence for God's written word might be visibly expressed and sensed by all for the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the living and triune God will endure forever. Let's hear and heed it faithfully together. This is God's word in Nehemiah chapter 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I'd built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Anu. But they intended to do me harm, and I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul, in 52 days, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehonanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray together. Lord, we're so mindful of our weakness. It besets us in many ways inside and out. We know, Lord, that in the midst of our weakness, you always show yourself to be strong. And so we do ask that even now our weakness would become a stage that the power of the gospel might be displayed with grace and glory before our eyes, and that Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, would be glorified in the church. All this we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated.
it's often been said that there are strength in numbers. I'm not the war history expert that many in this room are, but most of us are quite familiar that in the context of both World War I and especially World War II, that were strong powers that allied together. Uh, one such party was known as the Allies, another as the Axis powers. What both sides realized is that there are strength in numbers, and eventually the strength of the Allies was able to win. Uh, but just an important little line, say it ever so briefly, uh, there is in a certain sense strength to be found in numbers. But today in our text, we're going to look at a different kind of strength, uh, spiritual strength in the midst of a spiritual battle. But there too, by God's grace, we're going to see that there is indeed strength to be found in numbers. You have an outline before you. It's in your bulletin. We'll use those points to uh, work our way through our text. The first of which is that God's enemies gather to do harm. In a certain sense, Nehemiah chapter 6 begins almost like it's describing uh, the axis of powers. That is to say, there is something of an unholy trinity that is gathered together to oppose Nehemiah and his work on the wall, work that God has sent him to do. To note, the thing that Nehemiah is striving to do is not simply a project, but a holy task that God has sent him out to accomplish. It is a great work that comes with great significance. In fact, he refers to it as a great work early in this chapter. Earlier in the book, in chapter 3, he referred to it as a work that God had put in his heart to do. At the end of chapter 5, it is called a good thing that God would help him to accomplish. And even the enemies of God recognize that when this wall is built, it's not simply Nehemiah that did it, God did it. Uh, this is a spiritual task being accomplished by a man of God. But often the little things that we do are actually big things in the sight of God. The work accomplished with swords or trowels or shovels can become more meaningful in the sight of God. And certainly that is the case here because not only has God taken notice of the work that Nehemiah is doing, so also have his enemies. I want to talk a little bit about uh, these three names, this, as I've dubbed them, uh, this unholy trinity of Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. Who are these guys? Well, we don't know everything about them, but we do know a few things, and the few things we know about them paint an interesting picture. The first, uh, this fellow named Sanballat was a Horonite who comes to us with a Babylonian name. A Horon, as a place, is about 18 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Sambalat, who lives in this area, is something of a governor, and he has a little bit of status. That political status is actually a common denominator in all three of these names. They all have a political skin in the game, so to speak. He is married to the daughter of Eliashib, a priest in Israel. And so what is interesting and tricky is that he himself is likely a mixed-race person married into a Jewish family, but he is a governor. 14 miles away from Jerusalem, who feels threatened by this wall, and therefore he stands against Nehemiah. This wall in his backyard would become something of a thorn in his flesh, and so he is the first member of the unholy trinity. The second is this man named Tobiah. That's a Jewish name, and Tobiah is a man who has family connections in Israel as well. His son married a high-ranking Jewish official, and his primary interest in the story is protecting his political position. 
Uh, what is striking with the first two, Sanballat and Tobiah, is that they are not narrowly and only Gentiles that are opposing the wall. Uh, they are those who apparently have Jewish connections. So that the battle comes from without and the battle comes from within. The last name is the most straightforward in the sense of Geshem the Arab being clearly a Gentile. The name really says it all. It is not a term of endearment when he's called Geshem the Arab. It's a quick way of saying he's one of them. He's a Gentile. He's from uh, outside the family of Israel. And he's also, of the three, the most powerful. Uh, He is known and reputed according to the commentaries and even things outside of the Bible as being a powerful tribal warrior, a ruler of Arab tribes in the area of Edom and Moab on the southwest route going away from Jerusalem towards Egypt. And so what all three of these have in common is that they reside in areas not far from where the wall is being built. What they also have in common is that they don't want the wall to be built because the wall poses a threat. But what they ultimately have in common is that their selfish interest leads them to oppose the plan and people of God. It really is an unholy trinity, an axis of power, a satanic mob, if you will, that has found strength in numbers. But having thought a little bit about the three players, let's spend a little bit more time thinking about the ways that they attempt to stop Nehemiah. In many ways, this is the guts, if you will, of the chapter. Not the best way to put it. The heart of the chapter. How about that? Uh, there, There are three ways that they seek to undo Nehemiah. And I'll I'll come back to these three things in different ways in the sermon at different points. It's worth capturing them. Uh, And the three-pronged attack, if you will, is to hurt, to scare, and to tempt. This is how Satan attacks. This is how Satan attacks in Nehemiah chapter 6. Hurting, scaring, tempting. Verses 2 through 4 are the first stage, if you will, mini stage, and in many ways is like the setting of a trap. Uh, The language at first glance might sound pretty good. Hey, Nehemiah, let's meet together and talk. Let's counsel together. But notice the way that the language is given in verse 2, come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Anu, uh, if, if you knew anything about the geography of the area, you would know that's like saying, hey, let's go out in the middle of nowhere. Hit, hit, no witnesses. Way out there on a remote corner of the boundary of the area, a remote desolate plain, a remote plain far from the safety of Jerusalem, far from the safety of the walls. Nehemiah immediately begins to smell a rat, and he says so, uh, but they intended to do me harm at the end verse 3. It's very clear that he knows that something is up. It's very clear that he knows that they are intending not simply to oppose him, but even to harm him. And he resists quite wonderfully in verse 3, the way that he says it. This is great language. This is that of steadfast resolve. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should I, why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? It's great to see a person that has resolve. A little bit of stick-to-itiveness. An unbending resilience committed to a project, not simply for his own benefit, but ultimately uh, for the benefit of God and the people of God. 
So Nehemiah digs in and says, I'm not coming. And notice Sambalat doesn't ask him to do this, to come meet in this remote plain one time, two times, three times, four times, even a fifth time it is recorded that Sambalat tries to get him to come and to meet out in this plain. They say, if at first you don't succeed, try until you look foolish. So he does not succeed. They do not succeed. And so verse 5 takes us now to a different tactic. And this is where uh, we come to the scare tactic. If the attempt to do Nehemiah harm failed, even though it was repeated five different times, after the fifth time, Sinbalat sends an open letter. Now, I'll admit, I was intrigued when I saw that language of an open letter because I thought those were something invented like in the last five years by Me Too culture. But that's exactly what uh, is sent here, something of an open letter. And the whole point of an open letter is that this letter would not be sealed and delivered privately from a messenger to Nehemiah, but it would have been read publicly. It would have been read to the people. It would have been read in such a way as to use peer pressure to kind of twist Nehemiah's arm, to make him bend, to cave under the pressure of people saying, Nehemiah, this is what they're saying. Nehemiah, is this true? Nehemiah, is this what you're up to? Nehemiah, is this the kind of man you are? The the nice thing about an open letter is it has virtually no accountability whatsoever. And that's exactly what makes them so poisonous, destructive, and satanic. So the scare tactic is used to employ peer pressure to bend Nehemiah's knee. You should remember from the last chapter, I know it's been a few weeks, but the financial context here is a little bit important. Chapter 5 painted the picture of economic stress in Jerusalem. So that you had the haves and the have-nots. You had the borrowers and the lenders. And the problem, Nehemiah rebuked people, remember? The problem was that those that had the ability to loan were doing so at great interest to the point of impoverishing the people. And so now in that context, uh, what is likely being implied here is that Nehemiah, just like the wealthy, because remember he is wealthy, he is a governor, it's made very clear uh, at the end of chapter 5, that Nehemiah is using all of this context as a means to promote himself, his own agenda. Uh, He's staging a coup. He wants to be king. He's taking advantage of the poverty of the people. He's taking advantage of the position that God has given him. He's taking advantage of the wall. Nehemiah has a plan to glorify and enjoy himself. And so the way they say it in this open letter, it's been reported that you intend to rebel and to make yourself king. The nations have heard it. Geshem also says it. This is what you call stacking on. Right? It hasn't simply been reported. It's not simply our accusation. It's like saying, the whole world has heard this. Now your people have heard this. Even Geshem stands as a witness against you. And even more, uh, you have set up prophets to proclaim your own name as king. The accusation is that Nehemiah is a would-be king staging a rebellion. In some ways, it's like saying, you're a wannabe Saul a self-appointed king. You're, you're a wannabe Saul. With, you're a pretend king with pretend prophets. And so they also make this entreaty. Come, uh, let's take counsel together. Again, the words might sound friendly. But what would be the purpose? 
It's like saying, let me help you fix this. How often do dark whispers come to us that way? Subtle forms of temptation. You're in a pickle. The world's against you. You've got a bad reputation. This is what's being said. But if you let me take over, I'll fix this for you. Or uh, maybe it's a way of saying, we'll rebel with you. Either way, it's a lie. But they're trying to scare Nehemiah into a form of compromise rather than a posture of conviction. And so the third temptation is a category altogether. Uh, The third temptation is exactly that. It's temptation to sin, and it comes to him as smooth as wet soap. How smooth is wet soap? Pretty smooth. And so also is this one. Nehemiah describes in verse 10 how he goes to the house of what appears to be a friend, Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel. I went to a friend's house, or so I thought. Shemaiah is described in detail. His father and his grandfather are named. Uh, He is interestingly described as having a physical condition that prevents him from being mobile. And yet he proposes to Nehemiah, why don't we meet inside the temple? Not quite sure why. But it doesn't sound so bad at first glance. Let's go to church and talk. Except there's just one problem where Shemaiah says let's go is inside the temple, someplace that Nehemiah is not allowed to go. This is someplace that only a high priest would be able to enter. What he's doing is attempting to get Nehemiah to sin. Nehemiah is not a priest that can do this. To do so would have been sin. Verse 11 has just a a wonderful way of summarizing Nehemiah's response here. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. There's a positive and a negative here. On the one hand, he is saying almost as a man of integrity, do you think I'm a coward? Do you think I'm going to run away? Do you really think you're going to chase me away from what God has called me to do? Are you going to scare me off the wall? And the applied answer is no. On the other hand, Nehemiah, uh, if you will, he makes himself kind of small. And he says, at the same time, should such a man as I enter the temple? Should I profane that which is holy? Should I enter in to that which is forbidden? Should I sin against God and vainly run into his temple? He discerns that these words, this invitation does not come from God. These are not the words of God. And on top of that, not only is he now listening to the voice of false friends, there's also the voice of false prophets. And those false prophets are described at the end of this section, even in his prayer. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid." False friends, false prophets, all together serving an unholy trinity. But what you should notice is the strength in numbers. What do we pause and learn here uh, if we were to take uh, just a brief respite? What should we learn here? Well, one thing we should note is that, yes, there is, in a certain sense, strength in numbers. But we should also see that Satan has a number of different strategies, what is remarkable, and I know I've already mentioned uh, screw tape letters in this sermon series, and regrettably I can only mention it uh, so many times, but it is noteworthy that when one plan does not work to come against the people of God, he, Satan just goes to something else. If, if the front door is locked, he'll try the back door. 
If the back door is locked, he'll look for a window. If the windows are locked, you get the point. He keeps trying. He keeps prowling around uh, looking for a different way to undo Nehemiah. This is exactly the way that Satan is described. 1 Peter 5 describes Satan as a never-sleeping lion, always prowling, if you will, carefully observe the language, always studying the people of God. Like a book, trying to figure out where are the cracks in the windows? Where are the crevices in the floors through which a snake might crawl up? Which door of your house is unlocked? Always looking, always studying, always trying, always prowling. And yes, uh, there is strength in numbers. Last night I listened to the eerie sound around dark of coyotes out back behind the house. And, and you know that eerie sound. They sound demonic when they're, uh, when they're praying, don't they? They really sound dark. But you also know that they, like coyotes and many other things, rarely hunt alone. They hunt in packs. Because Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, coyotes, wolves, and lions know that there are strength in numbers. But there's a different kind of strength. A different kind of strength to be found in the people of God. And that will take us to our second point. God's people pray for protection. Where does Nehemiah turn when the wolves begin to circle? When Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, false friends, false prophets, false servants, an unholy trinity stands against him with strength in numbers, where does Nehemiah turn when the Axis powers seek to topple him? Well, he responds to, if you will, the unholy trinity's attempt to harm, scare, and tempt him by turning to the living God. If we might say it this way, by turning to the Holy Trinity. Notice how Nehemiah responds. I've interacted now with the three attempts on his life, if you will, and I want to talk about uh, his responses to each of them. Nehemiah responds to their attempt to harm and scare him by praying that God would strengthen his hands. As we've seen earlier in the book, so also do we see here, he offers up a brief but potent prayer at the end of verse 9. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. It's really really beautiful language. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. You and I have prayed that way many times. You know what it's like to feel weak. You know what it's like to feel undone. You know what it's like to sense I've got something before me, but my hands are shaky. My will is wavering. My resolve is weak. It's a beautiful plea when you think about it. It's simple, but don't let its brevity eclipse its beauty. It's a plea for God to intervene when we know we're weak. It's Nehemiah's way in a certain sense of recognizing, very importantly, that strength is not found in numbers, at least not humanly speaking, and that strength is not found in himself. There is no strength for Nehemiah to say, I and I alone can resist this unholy trinity, but rather acknowledging his weakness, he asks God for the strength and the power of God. He is like so many in the Bible who come to a place of realizing, God, right here, right now, I'm weak. And I need strength. And I need help. He is like Paul who readily acknowledges his weaknesses. Our weaknesses 
often become that stage upon which the grace and the strength of God are made evident and gloriously displayed. That's why in a certain sense, even in the Bible, we're told to rejoice in our weaknesses because they evidence the grace and the strength of God. So that beautiful little prayer, but now, O God, strengthen my hand, should not be overlooked for its depth and its beauty. It's also a prayer for remembrance. I want to drill down on this one just a little bit because I think it's a difficult prayer for us to remember. Come down to verse 14. There is a second prayer that Nehemiah offers up, but this one perhaps more troubling for some of us. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. The first prayer was for him, and the first prayer was, was for him. And the second prayer is not for him, and the second prayer is not for them. It is against them. You struggle with that? It's what we put in the category of imprecatories, uh, imprecatory prayers, and we struggle to understand, I think, how the people of God ought to use them. And I'm not going to get lost on that horizon, hopefully, uh, but I do want to say a few things about it, in particular about this prayer. Christians can and should pray along these lines. Christians can and should pray that God would remember. That God would remember who he is, not that he would forget. That God would remember what he has said, not that he would forget. And that God would act consistently according to his character and to his word, because that's exactly what he promises to do. To state it a little bit differently, uh, our hope is grounded upon what God has promised to do in his word. And that's exactly what Nehemiah prays consistently with. What has God promised to do? God has prayed, excuse me, has promised that he's going to judge his enemies. And you know what we call that? Justice. It is not wrong for Christians to pray for justice. God has also promised that he's going to save his people. We call that deliverance or salvation. And we should pray in that manner as well. And finally, God has promised that he is going to act in history, that he will not only remember, but that he will fulfill all of the promises that he has made. Not simply the promise to Nehemiah to finish the wall, but promises he begins the Bible with, promises that he ends the Bible with. God is a speaking God. God is an acting God. God is a remembering God. And in a certain sense, one of the most beautiful words that we can use in our prayers is the word remember. A plea that God would remember to do justice. A plea that God would remember to show mercy, kindness, and salvation. A plea that God would act in history and fulfill all the promises that he has made. And it's this way that we take our brief turn toward the cross. Because the cross, in many ways, is where we find the real strength of God. What you see in Nehemiah is is a little breadcrumb. a, A weak man who finds strength to finish the task. But what you also see in Nehemiah is a man who has an unholy trinity set against him. A man that has in many ways uh, an alliance, an axis of power seeking to undo him, to harm him, to scare him, to tempt him. When you think about Jesus, you cannot help but remember the fact that God sent Jesus for this reason. Why? Because God remembered that he said he would. God made a promise and he said, I will send my son 
And God remembered his promise because God is a remembering God. And the son came and he did all that the father sent him to do. Why and how? Because he never forgot who he was, his character, what he was sent to do, the work, the word that the father sent him with. Jesus remembered his mission all along the way. And even the spirit who ought not to be left out. The Spirit raised the Son and unites the people of God to the Son. Why? Because he remembers that God has a promise from all eternity that the people of God would be joined together and numbered among the family of God, that more than a wall in Jerusalem would be built, but the heavenly walls of that golden city in heaven above. And those promises are remembered by the Father. Those promises are remembered by the Son. Those promises are remembered by the Spirit. And those promises are given to us that we might remember. And that will take us to our third and final point, God's grace under pressure. If you happen to recognize the 80s band from which that title comes, you get extra credit, but not if you use your phone to find it. It's a beautiful phrase, though, grace under pressure. I have more I want to say about the son, but I have also more I want to say about sons and daughters, i.e. you. Uh, what more should we say about the son? Well, first of all, uh, think again, drill down just a little bit more deeply about the way in which Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem come against Nehemiah. The way this unholy trinity seeks to undo his mission by harming him, by scaring him, by tempting him. Well, I want to be careful here, so make sure you're listening carefully. Uh, There is a sense in which uh, those temptations are not identical to the temptations that come to Jesus. Although, interestingly, in commentaries, they take us to Matthew 4 to think about that. The same way that Satan came against Nehemiah is likened in some works to the way that Satan came against Jesus. That could be a little bit of a stretch, and I don't want to stretch beyond what the text says. We want to be careful about that. That being said, we might approach it this way. Uh, There is something similar or something that they have in common, and that is to say it like this. All Satan's arrows have one thing in common, and that is they all come from Satan. There is something common about these temptations that we see here. They may come in different forms, but when you think about it, they all have one source. This is why uh, we find a manner of fellowship, not simply in Nehemiah's temptations, but also as we think about Christ. Because all that comes against Jesus, while in a way different than what came against Nehemiah, they all had the same source. And I think you would be willing to agree that when boiled down, you could summarize them the same three ways. Satan came at Jesus attempting to harm him. When he entered the world, what did he begin to do? Trying to put Jesus to death, even killing children, males, born, same time, same place, trying to do Jesus harm. How many times along his path was Jesus... uh, How did someone attempt to scare him, if you will? Not simply Satan, even his own disciples saying things like, look, this cross talk, get that out of here. There's no way that that's going to happen. That's scary talk. That's crazy talk. Satan tried to harm him. Satan tried to scare him. And Satan tried to tempt him. Perhaps this is the one uh, that looks the most like one of Nehemiah's temptations. For even Jesus was offered the kingdom with a shortcut if he were willing to sin. 
and do that which he ought not to do, even that which seemed pretty good. So while the temptations may be different, at a minimum, they have something in common. But if they have something in common for Jesus, then they surely have something in common for us. For the Bible tells us elsewhere, and it's really an important lesson. Many of you feel it all the time. Through many trials and tribulations, we shall enter the kingdom of God. Do you know how much I wish that were not true? Do you know how much I I really wish it were not true for your life? Do you know how much I wish as a lazy pastor that would not have to deal with problems ever at all? We could just go, every day could be beach day. Wouldn't that be great? But Jesus said in his word, in this world you shall have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome this world. Paul said, through many trials we shall enter the kingdom of God. This is the reality of life in the world. There's something very, very common about what Nehemiah experienced. Because what Nehemiah experienced was an unholy trinity, an access of powers, strength in numbers, set against the people of God then, set against the Son of God in the days of Jesus, and set against the church now. Beloved, let me say it simply, you have enemies that don't sleep, that are always studying, looking for cracks in the windows, holes in the floor, unlocked doors. But you also have one who is stronger than all your foes. True strength in numbers. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are your strength. And you are weak. And there is no shame in saying, I am weak. It's actually the very point at which you first begin to become actually strong. There are unholy alliances in this world that set themselves against the church. Even, and very interestingly, the Bible uses almost that very same language, an unholy alliance of the world, the flesh, and the devil set against us. That's a great summary. What's your problem? R.C. Sproul's favorite question, what's the matter with you people? (laughs) The world the flesh, and the devil. The lust of the eyes, pride of the heart, the desires that lurk within. Isn't it interesting how the Bible puts those things in threes? Some of our greatest foes are outside of us. Some of our greatest opposition stands outside of us. And some of our greatest foes are inside of us. Some of our greatest spiritual opposition is right here. So where do we find strength? Same place Nehemiah did. Not in himself. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, O oh God, strengthen my faith. Now, O oh God, strengthen my heart. We become strong when we realize that we're actually weak, but there is strength in numbers. If by numbers, we mean in the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. We recognize the Lord that history has a way of teaching certain lessons and can actually be a pretty good teacher. There's an awful lot of repetition. We thank you for what we learned in Nehemiah chapter 6 that the people of God have enemies, but they have one who is on their side that is greater than Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, greater than all 
the surrounding nations, greater than false friends and false prophets, greater than the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we thank you that in Jesus Christ in particular, we have a tremendous victory. He who came into this world because the Father remembered and he sent his Son. He who came into this world because the Son remembered all that he was sent to do. He who came into this world because the Spirit would not only guide him through the world, but raise him from the dead at the end of his days. We thank you that that same Spirit not only abides in us, but enables us to remember that we are the blood-bought sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so while it is true that in this world we will have tribulation, and through many tribulations we shall enter the kingdom of God, help us to recognize the Lord that our great comfort and consolation is not found within us or even in this world, but in the beauty of our triune God. So help us to acknowledge that we are weak. Help us to run to you as our source of strength, and help us to take heart that Jesus has overcome the world, and he will therefore overcome, or overcome all that seeks to oppose the people of God. In his name we pray. Amen.